turn with me to John chapter number 10. You should have received a, your note sheet was in your bulletin. If you need another note sheet, we have some more in the back. Or ask Miguel for another bulletin. I think there's still some bulletins left back there. We're going through our study on marriage, our study on relationships. And last week we kind of touched on this subject a little bit, but I wanted to touch on it much more in a different direction. I want to touch on the fact that there are outside influences that want to destroy your marriage, want to destroy what God has created. Since the very beginning, Satan has had a goal, and that goal isn't to to come and, and indwell people. That goal isn't to come and influence people. That goal is simply to destroy God's creation. He does that through many different ways, but we're going to look at some of that today. We're calling this one, There Be Pirates in These Waters. Harder to do that without using a pirate voice. John chapter 10, verse 10 says, The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Jesus Christ is speaking here and he's talking specifically about the thief. One of the many names that that Satan goes by. And he's telling us what Satan's goal is. He's letting us know, he's warning us that there are influences out there. There are powers out there that want to destroy us. They want to destroy our relationships. They want to destroy everything. So let's jump right into your notes because you notice there's a lot of notes this morning. First thing I want to look at is I want to look at the different types of pirates that are out there. Basically, we can kind of classify pirates into two different categories. The first one we can classify them into is, is what we call carnal. And carnal just simply means of this world or fleshly. And we talked about carnal pirates last week a little bit. Carnal are the ones that, that you know, those are the people that are around you that, that some of them are, are well-meaning, but they, they bring strife into your relationships. Some of them are people who are intentionally trying to damage your relationship. Now, the second group, and the one we're going to spend most of the time talking about today, the second type of pirates that's out there the, is, is the, super, uh, the spiritual or the supernatural these spiritual pirates, these supernatural pirates. These are much more subtle because we convince ourselves and the world convinces ourselves that they don't even exist. They convince our, they they are uh, um, very adept at hiding behind the shadows and moving things behind the shadows to the point that it's easy to forget that they're there. But when we forget the enemy is there, is when the enemy can have the greatest impact and the greatest influence in our lives. We have to be on guard. We have to be ready. The Bible tells us over and over again to stand, be ready. Because we have to watch out for that lion, that roaring lion that cometh about seeking whom he made us devour. That's that lion being Satan. So the second part, spiritual beings. Who are these spiritual beings? Who are these spiritual pirates? First of all, we have Satan. That's specifically who John 10.10 was talking about, the first part, the thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. In Isaiah 14.12 it says, How thou art fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations. So we see that there's this being called Satan. If we had more time to unpack this and look at it, we'd see, as it tells us here, that his original name wasn't Satan, it was what? Lucifer. For the most part of the Bible, though, he's not addressed as Lucifer. He's addressed by other names. Satan, the devil, uh, the thief, the liar, the king of lies. All these different titles that are given to him throughout the word of God are given to this being, this entity called Satan. And here we see where in Isaiah is talking about how he fell from heaven. Now, the, the Bible is a little... Not completely clear on it, but it would appear that there were, there were three archangels in heaven. Those three archangels being Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. And Lucifer was the most beautiful of the angels. He was, the, the Bible talks about how beautiful he was and how powerful he was. And it got to the point where he felt that he was as powerful, if not more powerful, than the God that created him. And we see where he tried to usurp God's authority, where he started to begin to think you know, that he could do a better job at, at, at running things than, than what God could do. 
And when that pride was found inside of him, when that rebellion was found inside of him, he was cast out of heaven. And we look back and we think, how, how, how delusional, how demented would Satan have to be, would Lucifer have to be to think that he could do a better job at running things than God? But if we turn that mirror around on ourselves, how many of us, many times in our life, have basically said the same thing? God, I know more about my life than you do. I can make better decisions about me than what you can. And we repeatedly resist God's influence. We repeatedly resist God's word. God has a, a plan and a way to do things, and we resist it because why? Well, we know better. We're smarter than God. In essence, what we're doing is we're being just like Satan, and we're usurping the authority of God. And in our dimension, dementia, dimension, in our dementia, we begin to tell God and believe ourselves that we're better at running our lives than what he is. You don't have to examine yourself very hard to find periods of time in your life where you're doing that. Many of us are doing that today. God says, do this. Well, God, I know that your word says this, but this just seems to make more sense. This seems to be more palatable. This will be more receptive to my friends and my family. This will cause less waves. Or this is just easier. Or at least it appears easier. And so we resist. And in essence, when we do that, we're kind of following Satan. At least we're following his example, if nothing else. Let's look at that second group. That second group of, of pirates, spiritual pirates, of course, are the, the demons. One of the big distinctions between Satan and God is, is, is God is omnipresent, meaning that God is, is here right now. He is present. He's present with you everywhere you go. He exists everywhere in the world. Satan, on the other hand, is not. Satan is restricted just like any other created being is. Even if he is a powerful created being, he is still restricted. I would, I, if I was a betting man, which I'm not, because I would lose too often. But if I was a betting man, I'd take a bet today that Satan is not here in this service. You know why? Satan can be in one place at one time at a time. He's restricted where God is not restricted. He cannot be everywhere. He cannot do everything. So if he's not here, he's someplace. More likely, he's probably whispering in the ears of a, of a, of a world leader someplace or a, a religious leader that is much more influential than I am. And, and he's probably in one of those places working what he does. But he's not alone. I say Satan is not here, but most likely demons are here. I would be shocked and I'd be a little bit embarrassed if demons didn't feel worthy or needful to come to our congregation, to be in our services, because they would feel like there's nothing here that they had to fear. So who are the demons? In Revelation chapter 12, we, we see a little bit about the demons. It said, and there appeared in verse number 12, chapter number 12, verse number 3 of Revelation, and there appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold, the great red dragon, having seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew with the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up into God, into his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath, placed, hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days and there was war in heaven Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought against his angels and, he, and prevailed not neither was there a place found anymore in heaven and the, great, and the great dragon was cast out that old serpent called the devil and Satan which deceiveth the whole world he was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So we see kind of the, the initiation. Now, you have to understand something about the book of Revelation. We did a verse-by-verse verse study through the book of Revelation. It took us over two years, about two and a half years to go verse-by-verse. Verse. It's very heady, very weighty, and I'll be honest with you, 
at going through it verse by verse over two years, it felt like we were rushing. That there was, every time I'd be like, man, there's more there, there's more there. Because it's such a deep book of the Bible. But it's one of those books of the Bible that, that not only talks about things to come, which we really like to hear about the things to come, it also talks about time right now. And it also talks about time that took place thousands of years ago. And the account that we're seeing right here isn't something that's happening today or tomorrow. This is something that happened already in heaven. And John is being able to have this vision, be able to see this, this, uh, this picture that's taking place. And it's the time when, when Satan was cast out of heaven and his angels were. The stars of heaven that it talks about here are the angels that were cast out. And so we know that a third of the angels followed Satan as opposed to following God. What their motivation was at that point, we don't know. Um, but for some reason, a third of the angels felt that they needed to align themselves with Satan. So this is good news. This is bad news. One, it's, it's, it's bad news because that lets us know, even though we don't know how many angels there are, the Bible at one point tells us that they're innumerable. We don't know how many angels there were, but we know there's a third less. And we know that a third of a great quantity is still going to be what? A great quantity. So there's lots of demons. Uh, of various sorts. The good news is that since a third came out, that not only is God stronger than Satan by far, but for every demon that walks on the earth, there's two angels. Praise God. That should give us some comfort. So the demons were cast out. They came to the earth. The demons, the demons are, are also, um, they, are, they are superhuman, not, not supernatural in the sense that, that God is superhuman and that are supernatural and that he can be all places at one time that he has all power, that he has all knowledge. They are limited in each one of those areas. They also can be one place at one time. So the demons that are here today aren't anywhere else. They're just here, just like we are. We're not anywhere else. They also have limited knowledge. They also have limited abilities. They also, particularly compared to Satan. But compared to us, their knowledge and their abilities are, are, would seem much greater. We see in the Bible where... where Angels have the, uh, the abilities to be able to cause blindness, to be able to destroy cities, to be able to, to, to do many, many things that we don't have that ability to do. And we see these things translating into demons. Throughout the Word of God, particularly in the New Testament, uh, or particularly with, when Jesus was here on the earth, we see many interactions between him and demons. I don't want to go down too many rabbit trails as we go through this, but I just want to kind of give you an idea as to the players that we're dealing with here. It's important that we understand. It's important that we know. We don't have to understand everything about them, but we need to recognize the fact that they exist. Because much of the thing, many of the things that, that we attribute to natural causes in this world may very well be demonic. Um, many of the things that, that we attribute to, to uh, mental illness and, and medical problems may very well be demonic. I'm not saying that all mental illness is demonic. Don't, don't try and misquote me on that. But I believe a substantial portion of it is. And that's why so often we see where medications and therapies fail in people because medications and therapies don't have any control of the supernatural. We have to understand that our battles, the Bible tells us, our battles in the supernatural realm, not in the physical realm. And too often I see Christians who want to try and confront Satan and confront the devil and do all these things on the physical plane and... That's not where the battle's waged. It, it feels like it because that's where we feel the impact of it because that's where we live. We understand that our battles are won through prayer and through fasting and through obedience to God. It's where our battles are won. So let's look at some of these defenses. How do we defend ourselves against spiritual pirates? Well, the very first thing we need to do is we need to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22 says, Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, who hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. There was a picture that played out in the Old Testament during the uh, time of Noah. The whole situation with Noah and the ark and the flood is all a picture of salvation. And we see something very interesting that took place with Noah. God had Noah build this huge ark, the likes of which had never been seen. Now, boats weren't unusual back then. People had boats. And what they would do is they would, when they would, when they would build a boat, 
since they're made out of wood, and if you take wood and just put wood in the water, what, what does it slowly do? It swells up and absorbs the wood, right? Or it absorbs the water. And it'll swell, it'll buckle, it'll start to break down, and it'll allow water to get inside of the boat. And so what they would do is they would pitch it on the outside. In other words, they would seal it on the outside. They would take pitch, and that kept anything that was outside from getting in. Interesting thing, if you read the story of how God told Noah to create the ark, he told him to, to seal it on the outside and on the inside, which makes zero sense for a boat. There's no benefit to that. It doesn't float better. It doesn't keep water out better by pitching it on the inside. God was painting a picture. He was painting the picture of our sealing. That when we receive the Holy Spirit, that we are sealed on the outside and on the inside. There's nothing outside that gets into us. There's nothing inside that can get out of us. It's a picture not only of our eternal security, but it's also a picture of our protection from supernatural forces. Now, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've been sealed. You've been pitched on the inside and on the out. That is something that happens. It's what 2 Corinthians is telling us there. He says, who has sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. The Holy Spirit, one of the Holy Spirit's jobs is to seal us. So what that does when we're sealed is, is that protects us from any indwelling of, of, of these spirits. In other words, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you've been sealed, and a demon cannot possess you. Well, that should give you a little bit of comfort, right? The problem is that we need to go a little bit further than that. Because just because a demon can't possess me doesn't mean a demon can't influence me. Right? I'm going to embarrass Dave. Your wife, and, and literally, I mean, she may feel like it sometimes, but she can't possess you, but I'll bet she influences you. Yes, there we go. <laughs> right? And rightfully so. Husbands are supposed to influence their wives. Wives are supposed to influence their husbands. That's kind of the point of it. We're supposed to influence each other and build each other up, make each other better, right? And so we should influence. But, but we can't control the other person, can we? Emily, you can't get in Zach's head and tell him what to do, can you? But I bet you're real good at influencing him. Yeah, nudge, nudge, nudge. Zach just sits there and says, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am. And this is what demons can do to us, where they can't indwell us, they can't come inside of us, but they can still influence us. They can still change our circum the circumstances around us. You see, each one of us has, has a, a, because of our carnal nature, we have a natural propensity to certain types of sin. And sometimes it's difficult for me to understand or empathize with other people's sins because I don't see the, the desire there. Like, I have, I have no desire to take drugs. Just, it's just not there. You know, but, but other people, they, that's what they think about. That's what's on their mind. And so it's difficult for me to understand because if somebody gave me drugs, I'd be like, well, I don't even know what to do with these. I'd end up throwing them away or flushing them down the toilet or something because they mean nothing. Whereas if they were given to other people, they would cause their life to drastically change. I say that to say this, because the demons are there and because the demons are subtle, the demons know what your weak sin is. Nobody's going to tempt me with drugs, or no demon is going to tempt me with drugs because that's a waste of time. But they're going to know, they're going to know where that soft spot is in my armor, and that's where they're going to tempt me. And they know where your soft spot in your armor is, and that's where they're going to tempt you. My temptations are different than your temptations. Keep in mind, anything that Satan means for evil, God can use for good, though. But know that they have nothing else to do but watch you. And they watch you. They can't get in your head. They can't read your mind. They can't see your thoughts the way God can. But they can watch you. So when they're watching you, what are they seeing? How long would somebody have to watch you before they knew what your vice was? Particularly when you think you're all alone. How long would it take them? So we need to be conscious of this. We need to be, need to be sealed, but, but we need to also, getting to the second one, we, we need to stop encouraging them. We need to stop encouraging them. First Corinthians 10, 20, and 21 says, But I say, 
that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice the devils and not to God. And I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. We see that here he's talking to the church at Corinth. And he's telling them there, there needs to be a line. You can't worship God and worship devils. And they're probably thinking to themselves, well, we don't go to devil church. We come to God's church. But we, we have a tendency in our society to incorporate things of the occult into our society. We have a tendency of bringing them into our homes and bringing them into our lives, having them on Facebook and other places, and, and, and we bring those things in, and then we wonder why demonic activity gets so strong around us. You go to Walmart and buy a Ouija board, and people say, oh, it's just a game. It's not just a game. It is designed for something. And when we allow that into our house, we are inviting and we are encouraging demonic activity. You know, when we first moved out here, we knew the garbage was coming early in the morning, so we started putting our garbage cans out at night, the night before. When we put our garbage cans out the night before, then we'd get up in the morning, and you know what we'd find out by the road? Our trash all over the road. Because the dogs around here and the raccoons around here, they know all they got to do is travel down the road, and when they see a can, there's something good in that can. Just simply by moving that can up by the house, didn't have to secure it. It stopped. Because the dogs weren't looking by the house, the dogs and the raccoons were looking out by the road. And in essence, by putting the food out there, we were encouraging their bad behavior. We were encouraging them to inconvenience us. Inconvenience us. We were encouraging them to, to spread trash all around our road and all around our, our house because we were encouraging them. If you've lived anywhere where bears are prevalent, where they tell you, if you want to avoid bears, keep your, keep your garage doors closed. Keep your doors closed and keep your garbage secured. They even make special cans for that because the bears are looking for food. And we don't want to encourage the bears. We don't want to encourage the dogs. And we don't want to encourage the demons. We need to keep those things far away from us. We need to keep, a, keep them at, a, you know, at, at more than an arm's length away from us. And not allow anything demonic in our houses and around our kids and around our hearts. We need to stop encouraging them. How do we encourage them? By evolving ourselves in anything of the occult. Astrology. Horoscopes. Say, so, oh, those are just fun little games. No, they're based in the occult. They're based in the occult. It kind of leads us to our next point, which is stop minimizing them. Stop minimizing them. Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 12 says, When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God gave thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or daughter to pass through the fire, or that useth divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. So here he's telling them, as, as you conquer these lands, they're not, you're not killing everybody, so, so the people are going to be there, but you're, you're conquering the armies, you're moving into these lands that I gave you that were taken from you. As you take them back over, there's going to be people there, and these people are worshiping things they shouldn't be worshiping. And as we live our lives in this world, we're going to come across people who are worshiping things that we shouldn't be worshiping. And the tendency was for them and the tendency was for us to say, okay, I know God, but, but there's no harm in a little Harry Potter. Or I know God and there's no, there's no harm in having a dream catcher in my house. And what we're doing is we're minimizing these things that God has called an abomination. I had somebody tell me that, you know, they, one time about Harry Potter, they're like, well, I let my son read Harry Potter because it's, it's you know, it's the only thing he'll read. And I want him to read, so, so it's better because he, he reads. I said, well, get him a Playboy, he'll read that too. But that's not going to make him better, is it? And they're like, well, I would never do that. Well, you're doing more damage to your son with Harry Potter than you are with a Playboy. At least the same. We're allowing, we're taking something, and, and, and our children's programming is horrible today, at taking things that, that where they take things that are, are occultic and make them to where they seem okay. 
They minimize it. They even make them out to be heroes in many of the cartoons and, and children's programming today. And we need to, we need to understand that, that this is called an abomination. And we should have no part in these things. We need to stop minimizing them and recognize them for what they are and keep them away from us and keep them away from our families. Now, I'm not saying go pick at Walmart or go pick anything like that because that's not what the Bible tells us to do. The Bible says guard ourselves, guard our families. And that's what we need to do. You know, if, if Christians would start living like Christians, um, businesses would change very, very quickly. Because businesses aren't in business to, to provide a moral compass for our communities. Businesses like Walmart and, and Target and, and all these other businesses, they're in business to provide people with what they want and make money on it. I mean, it's a pretty simple business plan. You want a Ouija board? We'll sell you a Ouija board. Nobody wants Ouija boards? Okay, we're not selling Ouija boards. And they will provide whatever it is the market wants because they don't want a store full of stuff that nobody wants. They want to turn that stuff over. And they're constantly evaluating, constantly looking at everything is computerized. I used to be a manager with Target. And we got a, we had a buyer. I don't know who it was, but there was a buyer that was something was wrong with him or her. And we received in one year a whole new line of, of clothing for, um, or um, underclothing for little girls. And it was all modeled off of the Victoria's Secret type of stuff for grown-up girls. It was like high thigh, that was at the French cut or something, it comes way up high. The, the thongs, uh, see-throughs. And this wasn't for like teenage girls, which would be bad enough. This was for, this were for, this was like for girls like Harper's age. And it's like, why would we want a five, six, seven year old girl wearing these things? And, and, you know, we had this whole big area and everybody's like, what just happened? And some, some store managers are like, no, we're not selling these. We're not even putting these on our floor. And there was a pushback, but you were, where in Target was, was vehement. These were going to be put out. These were going to happen. But do you know what ended up happening? The customers got upset. And the customers said, we are not buying these. And they didn't sell. And when they didn't sell, they all got shit back. You see, because it, it's not about trying to impose our, our will upon other people or anything like that. It's simply sticking to the word of God. And, and businesses will provide and not provide the right things. I mean, it's really not rocket science. No offense to the rocket scientists in the building. How do rocket scientists become, you know, we use that as like the upper echelon. Think about that for a minute. Basically, they're just lighting off an explosion and controlling it. Isn't that what shooting a rocket is? You're lighting a match. I used to do that as a kid. But anyways, I won't go down that road. I won't go down that road. But we need to stop minimizing. We need to stop encouraging them into our, into our houses, into our families, around us. And, you know, um, on, on Facebook, just allowing them to have input into our lives and into our relationships. How can it, how can possibly it strengthen your relationship to have occultic things being brought in to that relationship? There's no good thing that can come of it. Fourthly, what we can do to stop encouraging it or stop or protect ourselves, I'm sorry, defend ourselves against it, is to put on the whole armor of God. You see, God doesn't just leave us out there. God didn't just say, this is an abomination, don't do this. He gives us tools. He gives us the ability to be able to resist these things. He gives us the ability to move past these things. Now, now we could do a study on the, on the armor of God that could take weeks and months and, and years because there's so much there. But I want to run through the armor of God real quick with you. It starts in Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 11. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil, and may withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. So our command is very simple. He, we're, he's giving us the tools. 
He's telling us our, our, our battle isn't here. Our battle is, is spiritual. It's not physical. It's not carnal. We're not supposed to lash out against people with physical violence. That's not where our war is. Our war is fought on the spiritual realm. And he tells us, he gives us the tools to use. In verse 14, he says, in the first part of 14, he says, Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth. I let on your sheet, I put it as the belt, the belt of truth. Because in essence, that's what we would call that. What, girding up your loins, what, what they would do is they would, they would pull up their, the, whatever they were wearing and they would tighten it, cinch it up tight around them because that's what they would do before they had to move quickly. A lot of times the, the clothing that they wore at that particular time this was written was, was billowy, for lack of a better term. It was robes and it was uh, and different things. And so they would, they would pull it up and they would tie it up tight so their legs would move freely. Well, today what we'd say if we're getting ready to, to do something, we would pull up our pants. We tighten up our belt. We're getting ready to do something. And so that's what girding up your loins is about. And what are we girding it up with? We're girding it up with truth. See, the devil is the father of lies, the Bible tells us. And if we want to fight against the father of lies, we need the truth. And we need to, to have the truth. We need to live in God's truth. What that means is it doesn't matter whether or not we agree with it or don't agree with it. If it's God's truth, we need to be living it. And we need to be praying for understanding as to why, God, is this your truth? He may answer. He may not answer. But we need to have the truth. The only way we know the truth is to study the truth. God gave us his word, 66 individual books, full of his truth. But most Americans, most Christians in America, don't take the time to read it. It's kind of hard to gird up your loins. It's kind of hard to tighten up your belt when you're not wearing one. Right? And we don't read our Bibles, and we don't, we don't study his truth. We really don't have a belt to tighten. So we're, we're stuck right there at that first spot. The second one, or B, I think it is on your seat is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. That's the second half of verse number 14. The breastplate of righteousness. It says, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, understand our righteousness, the Bible tells us, is as filthy rags. So it's not our righteousness we're putting on. It's his righteousness we're putting on. Because our righteousness isn't any good. What is, what is righteousness? How do we get that righteousness in our lives? Mainly through moral obedience. By taking the things of the, of the Word of God and applying them into our lives. By putting them in and following them. We, we spent a good portion of last year talking about different disciplines of the Bible. We went through sacrifice. We went through fasting. We went through meditation. We went through prayer. We went through Bible reading and studying. All these different things that, are, that God has, has called us to do. And as Christians, as we do those things, we are putting on that breastplate of righteousness. And the interesting thing about the breastplate, now, when we're looking at this, think of the armor that a soldier would have worn back then. What does the breastplate defend? The heart, the lungs, all the, the, the organs, the critical organs. You can, you can take a hit in a lot of places on your body and you know, walk away, it's just a flesh wound, right? You know, the old Monty Python skit. Most of you probably haven't seen that, but Google that. It's just, if, if you don't like English humor, you're not gonna like it, but I like it. But anyways, you know, it's just a flesh wound if it's on the arm or on the leg or someplace like that, but, but a wound here. A wound here can be deadly, can be debilitating. How many of you had a firearm training? A couple of you? Several of you in the military, right? Justin, they teach you in the military that when you're going to shoot somebody, you aim for the leg, right? Like on TV, you shoot the gun out of their hand, right? That's right? No? Where do they teach you to shoot? Center mass. Center mass. I remember when I was training with the Department of Corrections. We, they trained us to fire twice and to fire both into center mass. And it became habit. It became routine. You'd see the guys at the, at the, the range, and they'd always pop two at a time. And it was center mass, center mass, center mass. Why? Because if you, if it, if it, that's where you can stop somebody. That's where you can kill somebody or you can take them off their feet. You can debilitate them. And the great thing about center mass is, is that even if you miss center mass, and you get off six inches one way or the other, you're still hitting something pretty important. So that breastplate of righteousness is to protect that. It guards our organs. Most importantly, it guards our heart. And in a spiritual sense, we need our hearts guarded. How many of you have ever felt discouraged or, or depressed? Maybe it's because the breastplate of righteousness isn't there. It's not 
it's not there and we're not guarding our hearts the way we need to. Then we have the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. Verse 15, and, and, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Let's talk about our feet being shod. This is our shoes, our sandals, whatever we're wearing on our feet. Our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We need to have peace in our lives. And the gospel gives that to us. You see, the gospel isn't just about salvation. The gospel enables us to be able to take our worries and leave them at the foot of the cross. We can't have peace in our lives when our life is full of worry. You wake up in the middle of the night worrying about things, take it to the foot of the cross. Immediately give it right back to Jesus Christ. Because whatever it is that's worrying you, you probably don't have a lot of control over. And how foolish is it for us to worry and grieve and stress over things that we really don't control? When we have a father who does control it and is waiting for us to boldly walk into his throne room and put him down. But we have to really put him down. I see people all the time that say, well, you know, I'm worried about this. I'm worried about this. I say, well, you've got to give it to God. I did. Well, no, you didn't. Because if you did, you wouldn't be worrying about it. You'd stop talking about it. We, gotta, we have to get rid of those things. I remember when I was working at, at Target. That's two Target references in one time. Right there. That hardly ever happens. We had a store down in South Florida um, at the Sawgrass Mills Mall. Anybody familiar with that, that store? It's a huge store, huge, huge mall. Down there. At the time, it was one of the biggest stores in, in one of the biggest Target stores in the country. I think they've gotten bigger ones now. And they were having some, some shrinkage problems. They were having some shortage problems. And so they... They had us go in and look at it to see if there was, you know, if we could figure out why was this store losing so much money, because they had state-of-the-art, you know, surveillance systems. They had teams out there that were catching shoplifters and stopping police theft and all this, and they couldn't find it. And 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 so what we ended up doing is we we just started we started analyzing, looking over the books and all. And one of the things what we would do in those situations is we would look for things that were out of the ordinary, things that were different, and we identified that the soda machines in the employee break room were losing money. How does a soda machine lose money? They put five-cent sodas in there and sell them for a dollar. How does it lose money? It's got to make money. And so the, the store manager there and other people were like, well, that, that's not that much. That's a few hundred dollars. Don't worry about that. We're, we've lost tens of thousands over here. We need to worry about this. But we went ahead and we focused in on those soda machines. What we found out, we put up a camera, because there was no cameras in the break room. We put up a camera just to watch, see what was going on. You see the guy, he comes in, he loads it up, takes the money out, everything looks right, it's all counted, takes it right into the, the cash office where everything's counted, everything looks fine. We kept watching, we kept watching. What we found out was that the, the, the overnight crew was coming in, and when they would buy their sodas, they had made a special dollar bill. And they took a dollar bill, I'm going to teach everybody how to steal and took a dollar bill, and they put packing tape on it. And so it made, instead of a little dollar bill, it made like a long strip. And they would feed it into the machine, and as soon as the machine would make that sound that it registered the dollar, they'd snatch it back out. And not only would they get their soda, they'd get change back. And the whole team would line up, and they'd pass this dollar bill from one person to one person to one person. They were all stealing from that crew. So I sit down with these people, we, we sit down with them, and we start talking about it, and, and guess what? Shockingly, this wasn't all they were stealing. They were stealing all kinds of stuff out the back door and everywhere else. My point is, is that, you know, that dollar bill is a lot like our worry, where we say we give it to God, but then at the last second, what do we do? We snatch it back. Sometimes worry becomes comfortable, and we want to hold on to it. We need to be shod with the gospel of peace. When we are tied down with worry, we become ineffective for God's kingdom. Because our time and our mind and all of our effort is all spent on the worry and not on the peace. The next one, the shield of faith. Is that D? Yep, okay. 
I, for some reason, I labeled yours with letters and I labeled mine with numbers. And when I did it, after I did it, I printed it out. I'm like, oh, why did I do that? I'm like, nah, that's okay. I can, I can figure this out as I go. I don't know where you're at. This is the fourth one on my page. The shield of faith. The shield of faith. Verse number 16 says, Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. You see, we need to begin to live our lives based on God's word not based upon circumstances of our life. Because it doesn't matter. You can be the best Christian in the world. You know what's going to happen? The fiery darts are going to come. They're going to come. So your choice is whether or not you have the shield of faith, whether or not you believe God can handle these things, whether or not you believe God can do it. And you know, that's the main reason why we snatch our worries back is because deep down inside, we don't believe God can do it. We need that faith. I encourage people to keep a prayer journal, particularly new Christians. Keep a prayer journal about the things you're praying about. And when God answers those prayers, make a notation that he answered them. And when you get to a point where you feel like your shield of faith isn't working, you feel like your shield of faith is failing, go back and look at all the times that God has been faithful and see how quick your, your shield gets built back up again. We need to have that shield of faith. As humans, it's our natural reaction to respond to whatever's going on around us. But if we have the shield of faith, we don't allow those darts to hit us. It doesn't just deflect them. What does it say? It quenches the darts. It puts them out. The faith that we build up. The next one, the helmet of salvation. Verse 17, the first part of verse 17 says, and take the helmet of salvation. What, is a, what does a helmet do? It protects the head. You know, we talked about protecting the heart, but you know what? The heart doesn't work real good if the head's gone. Although I saw a chicken yesterday that didn't have a head and it lived for like 15 months. That's just crazy. Nothing to do with our sermon. Just happened to see that yesterday. It popped in my head. We need to protect our heads. Because the way to our hearts is through our head. God, Satan will, will put things in our mind. He'll, he'll put people around us. They'll say, well, yeah, we know what the Bible says, but this is more important. Or this is better. Or don't, that's silly. Don't worry about that. And he puts these things in our heads and we start thinking about them. And say, yeah, that is kind of silly. And so does, that, does it even matter? And we start thinking these things, we start dwelling on these things, and pretty soon, even though our heart is protected from the outside through our head, our heart starts to get damaged. We need to protect our heads. The head controls the body. Our minds are a battlefield. Faith is the key to winning the battle. The rest of verse number 17 says, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, we need to have the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. Interesting thing about swords in that day and even today. Well, I'll tell you my, my experience with swords. I grew up um, and I used to love Zorro. Anybody like Zorro? Am I the only one? Zorro, he's like the coolest dude. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't mind John Wayne and some of the other guys in the Westerns, but Zorro. I mean, you know, he always had something, you know, he was quick-witted, always had something to say. The women liked him. You know, he could almost fly when he'd jump over things, and he had the cool sword, right? The sword and the whip. He was known for his sword. And he was the best swordsman. There was nobody better than him. And I used to love watching those things and imagining, you know, that I was that swordsman. I was the best swordsman. But if you notice what happens with a swordsman, it, most of the time when they're, when they're in a sword fight, they're just hitting each other's swords. It's very rare that they actually get to make contact with each other. You know why? Because the sword isn't just about stabbing somebody. The sword is also about defending yourself from being stabbed. And here the sword is the word of God. Too many Christians use the word of God as a club to beat people with. But the sword should be used more often to defend ourselves. 
and to protect ourselves. There are times where, where it needs to be used as an offensive weapon. It is a sword. But most of the time, this sword needs to be used to defend us against Satan and against his minions. And when we read it, when we study it, when we hide it in our hearts, it becomes a defensive weapon. You see, because something will happen, and, and it will feel overwhelming, and then we'll re be reminded, oh, that's right, I'm never alone. Jesus told me that he'd never leave me, he'd never forsake me. The Holy Spirit indwells me, and he's always there. He'll protect me. I've told you my story before, that I've always had a, 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 a I always felt like I had a leg up anytime I, I did anything. Anytime I'd go into a job interview, anytime I would, I would be in any type of competition, I always felt like I had a leg up. Why? Because I'm not walking in there as just somebody looking for a job. I'm walking in there as a child of the king. And they would be blessed to have me there. Now, that's not narcissistic. That's not egotistical because it's not about me. It's about who my father is. You know, and sometimes you want to ask people, do you know who my father is? You know, not John Morgan getting pulled over drunk for the tenth time saying, do you know who I am? But do you know who my father is? John Morgan's going to sue me now. He's going to come and take our computers. And I know when I've been working too hard and haven't been getting enough rest. I went into Wawa's down here one day, and then I was, I was just, it was towards the end of the day, and I was beat. I'm tired. I'm going in there to get a soda. I don't even remember what it was, soda or probably a monster. I don't know what it was. I'm going in there to get something, and guy stops, looks at me, he's like, you're the guy from the commercials. I'm like, what? Yeah, the, the for the people guy. I'm like, oh, do I look that bad? <laughs> I just turned around, went home, took a nap. It's motivated me to lose weight. It's just horrible. Yeah, he's definitely suing me. I'm going to have to move to Mexico or something. Where was I at? How did I get onto John Morgan? The last thing we need is the last thing we see in those verses. We normally stop at 17, by the way. But look at what verse number 18 says. It says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. And watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. The last one, prayer. You want to, be, you want to defend yourselves against these, these spiritual pirates? you got to pray. You have to pray. And not just pray for yourself. It doesn't say that. It says pray for what? For all saints. Now, according to the Bible, you become a saint when you become a child of the God. We are the saints of God. I know there's many, many cults out there and many other groups out there that teach something different. That, that you know, we have to decide which one of us is a saint. No, God decides. Over and over again, the, the, the brethren are called the saints of God. It doesn't mean we're indwelled with mystical powers. It's just the title. It's who we are. We are a child of the king. We are his saints. And it tells us here that we're supposed to, to have prayer and supplication. What is, the supplication is a word we don't use very much. But in, in essence, the way it translates today would be a, a, a pleading, almost a begging kind of a prayer. It's like asking for something. And when we pray, oftentimes, you know, we, we, we're good at asking for things for ourselves. But here it's saying do that for all saints. Maybe you don't even know. What all the saints are going through, it doesn't matter. God knows. He just tells us to pray. We, we're changing things up a little bit on Wednesday night in our prayer time. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking little bite-sized pieces every Wednesday on studying about prayer as it was done in the Bible, making our, making our prayers more God-centered and less man-centered. That's where we're starting. And we're, we're, I don't want to get into all that right now, but, but, but I encourage you to pray. In the Bible, there's basically two types of prayers. There's personal prayer, and there's what we call corporate prayer or group prayer. Most of the prayers in the Bible are corporate prayers. And some of you are like, well, no, I don't want to come and pray. and I won't pray in public because, because the Bible warns us against praying in public. Understand, almost every time Jesus prayed, it was in public. It's not where the prayer is said that's as important as what's in the person's heart. You see, because Jesus never prayed with that prayer of look at me, look at me. But he prayed in public. Matter of fact, the example that he gave us 
the example prayer, the, we call it the Our Father, right? You notice it doesn't say My Father? You know why it doesn't say My Father? It says Our Father? Because they were to pray it together. It was a corporate prayer for the church. Not that exact prayer. That was our example. Of course, you guys know that. And so on Wednesday nights, what we're doing is we're, we're taking bite-sized pieces of, of, of the, the gospel, of, of the word of God, to, to help all of us pray better. And then we pray. We take time every Wednesday to pray. And sometimes, sometimes we know details about what's going on, and sometimes we don't know details. And it doesn't matter because God knows all the details. You know, somebody just says, hey, pray for me. Okay, for what? It doesn't matter. Pray for me. Because God knows. Matter of fact, God knows better than I know what's going on in my life. How weird is that? That's the God we serve. He, is, he has such intimate knowledge of us that, that sometimes when I'm going through something, I'm not really going through what I even think I'm going through. I'm going through something completely different. But in my mind, it's this, but God knows it's actually this. And so when I pray, I don't pray, God, take care of this. I pray, God, your will be done. So he takes care of this, and guess what? That goes away because he's actually praying the problem or praying to fix the problem. But we need to have that prayer. It says to pray with supplication. We need to pray with perseverance. What does perseverance mean? It means continue to pray. Paul says that we need to pray unceasingly, meaning we need to be in prayer constantly throughout the day, like, a, like an open mic kind of a thing all day long with God. And we need to be praying ceasingly. What would happen if, if just, just take this one verse. If every Christian in this country started praying with supplication and started praying with perseverance for the other saints, what would that do to our churches? And our community, it goes the way of our churches. You can't turn on the TV today without seeing some politician claiming something or, or, or hating on something. And, and you know, they're all going to fix everything. Politicians have been trying to fix this country for hundreds of years. And you know what they do? They make it worse. You know, we, a little, you know, sometimes we'll get a little bit better, but it never gets better, better. You know why? They don't have the ability or the power to do it. There's one thing that has the power and the ability, and that is God, and he's chosen to work through his people. If we want America to be great again, it comes from this congregation, these people. And people, congregations just like this all across the country. As each individual gets themselves right before God and getting right before God starts with being on our knees in prayer. Or standing in prayer. Eyes closed, eyes open. It's less the physical position of our, of our, of our bodies and more the, 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 the position of our hearts when we go to him in prayer. And if each one of us would just take, if, if, if nothing else we talked about today, if you would take that last verse and begin to live out that last verse, your life would be changed. The people you love, their lives would be changed. If each one of us did it, our churches would be changed, our community would be changed, and our world would be changed. Will you do that? We covered a lot of stuff today. I feel like I just backed a dump truck up on you and dumped it all out on you. I probably left more questions than I answered. That's okay. Maybe that'll encourage you to go back and study the scriptures for yourself. But if you don't get anything else today, get that last verse. The lack of prayer in our churches has led to a very anemic church in this country. A church that just doesn't matter anymore. A church that's not relevant anymore. A church that the, the unchurched sees nothing different about, nothing changed about, has no desire to go to because they don't see anything happening there. That's got to change. And it starts with each one of us praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. That's where it starts. I guess technically it starts with before you become a saint. Before you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior before you've even been sealed by the Holy Ghost. You see, each one of us is individually accountable before God. Each one of us has to make a choice. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Direct, emphatic, leaves no gray area. 
He didn't say, I am a way, I am the way. It starts with Jesus. There's a reason why he came and died on the cross. The reason is because we're all sinners. We've all come short of his glory, the Bible tells us. We've all missed the mark. God had a, God had a perfect plan for you. You know that? That before you were even conceived, God had a perfect plan for you and for your life. He did for each one of us. But you messed up. And you got good company because the person beside you messed up too. And the person behind you and the person in front of you, we all messed up. We all messed up bad. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin, because we messed up, what we deserve is we deserve hell. That's shocking for some people. Well, my sins aren't that bad. I didn't kill anybody yet. Thinking about it, but I didn't kill anybody. You know, I, I didn't commit treason. I didn't kill anybody. I haven't they raped and stolen. I haven't done any of those things. No, but we've all done something to come short. And when we come up short, now suddenly we're not worthy of God. Our righteousness becomes as filthy rags. And God sent a solution. He sent his son to die on the cross. To pay for your death. So that when you physically die, you don't have to spiritually die. So instead of dying here and opening up our eyes in hell, we can die here and open up our eyes in his presence. Amen? If you're here today and you've never done that, by the way, you don't, you don't get there by accident. You don't get there by going to church. You don't get there by giving money to the church. You don't get there by being a good person because, you know, what? most of you are pretty good people. There's a couple hues in here that are a little shaky, but most of you are pretty good people. I'm not going to point it out. You figure it out amongst yourselves. But most of you are pretty good people. Uh, right? I'm a pretty good person. I'm not kicking dogs. I haven't slapped an old lady in weeks. I'm a pretty good person, but you know what? Being a pretty good person is not going to get me to heaven. Because I came up short. The only thing that gets me to heaven is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. And there was a point in time in my life where I accepted that, that gift, that sacrifice that was made for me. Myself. Nobody could do it for me. I had to do it myself. Each one of us individually accountable. Each one of us has to make an individual decision. I, parents, I, I know we struggle sometimes with our kids because we want to make them Christians. And we can't. That's their choice. That's their decision. And we can do a lot of things to influence that. One, get the demonic activity away from them. Two, start living a godly life around them, telling them what they need to know, but not just telling them, but living what they're supposed to do in front of them. How many kids grow up knowing their parents are hypocrites because their parents say one thing and do something else? Parents stand there and say, don't ever smoke. It's bad for you. Well, they got a cigarette in their hand. Does that impact the kid? No. Impacts the kid when the when the parent says, you know what, this is bad, and this is dumb, and I'm quitting. And don't you ever start. That's much more of an impact. Much more of an impact. We need to live Christ out in front of our children, in front of our grandchildren. We need to be living Christ out in front of our in front of our uh, siblings, in front of our parents, in front of our coworkers. We need to be living it out. They need to know there's something different. If you're here today and you never accepted Christ as your Savior, we're about to have a, a song of invitation. We're going to invite you to, to step out and join us here at the altar. And let one of us show you in the Bible how you can know for sure if you should die today that you'd go to heaven. You don't have to worry about hell anymore. Take that off your plate. And I spent a, a good portion of my adult life running away from God. I see much similarities in my life and the life of Jonah. Thankfully, God didn't have to eat me with a fish. Or actually have a fish eat me, I guess is the right way to say that. You know, I didn't, I didn't have to, to have that happen before I woke up. But I spent a long time running. I was always his child, and even in the back of my mind, I knew that, you know what, I knew I was messing up, I knew God was mad at me, but I also knew that I was still his child. 
And it took me a while, but I knew that he was waiting for me. He was waiting for his rebellious child to come home. And I finally did. It took me getting worried about somebody else to get my heart back on God again. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, we're going to have a time of invitation. We pray that you'll come forward. Maybe you're here and maybe, maybe, you'll, let, maybe you'll let some occultic things get in your life. And you want to come and say, God, I'm going to draw a line in the sand, but I need your help. I want to purge my life of these things, but I need your help. Maybe you're saying, you know, I'm doing good in this area, but I'm not doing so good in this area. My breastplate of righteousness needs a little work, God. Maybe you want to come and give that to him and ask him to work on it. And you can do that from your seat. But you may be an encouragement to somebody else when you step out and come to the altar. Every week I see people holding on to the seats in front of them, white-knuckled, because they want to go forward, but they're afraid of what somebody may think. Don't worry about what man thinks. Worry about what God thinks. There's always going to be somebody that's got something negative to say about you or something negative to think about you. As I get older, that bothers me less and less. I can stay focused on what God thinks. Let's all stand.